Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 13 as we continue our study of the book of Matthew. <clears throat> I wanted to, uh, before we pray, talk to the kids and say, kids, uh, you oftentimes hear somebody tell a secret. And when they tell a secret, all the kids always perk up. Hey, I got a secret for you. And so they perk up. They want to hear the secret. Well, Jesus is actually helping us to understand a secret today. And I wanted to encourage you in that. Um, Jesus tells very simple stories. And even if you're a child here and you can't read, that doesn't matter. Because uh, Jesus tells things so that people who can't read can understand and can grasp them. In fact, most people, many people in Jesus' day couldn't read. And, as, and when the Bible was, uh, went into the Roman lands, it definitely didn't. But kids, if you look at the bottom of the uh, bulletin, <clears throat> here's some questions that um, hopefully your parents will ask you later on today or this week. But I just want to run over the questions with you so that it'll kind of plant the seeds in your head. Um, the first question is, what is the overlapping of the ages as it's described in this sermon? I'm going to actually show you a picture of that. What does the mustard seed parable teach about the kingdom? What does the leaven teach about the kingdom? How is the kingdom's growth, growth astronomical? And I'll define that for us. How is it imperceptible? And I'll define that for us. Why should this make us excited about what God is doing in the world, and how can we do our part? So kids, listen for this, because these sermons are, are, are prepared for you as well, and Jesus loves you, and he knows that uh, he's, he wants these things communicated to you. So he gave them to us in very, very simple parables, and that's what we're going to look at today. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, please, we pray for young and for old for wise and for those who of us who are less educated than others, even those here who cannot read. We thank you that you are Savior of all and that you love and you are tender and that you have a heart that all would come to you and trust in you and believe in you and find hope in you. And Lord Jesus, you are doing great things and you are teaching us what those are to give us eyes to see, to look around us even today to look around this world and to see something that the world itself can't even perceive. We pray that you'll give us grace. We pray that you will teach us. We pray that you will fill us with hope. We pray that you will help us. Come now, send your spirit, we pray, to be our instructor. And we ask this in your precious name. Amen. As you look out on the world today or on our country today, there's lots of reasons to be discouraged. I hear a lot of people saying, uh, I don't listen to the news anymore. I just can't stand it. It depresses me. I don't want to listen to the news. So I have some really lofty goals today. Here are my lofty goals today. Goal number one, I'm hoping that you will become deeply excited about something that is going on in the world today. In fact, I hope that you will be deeply excited about the most significant thing that's actually going on in the world today. And yet it's going on under the radar, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. But I'm hoping that you'll actually be excited about the world today. You'll be excited about what's going on in the world around us today. And secondly, I'm hoping, my second lofty goal is that you will be deeply motivated, that we will be deeply motivated because of this excitement 
to take up your important part in what is going on in the world today. Uh, you and I have an important part in all of this, and so I'm hoping that we'll take that up today as well. So what we're doing is we're, what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 13 is that he is teaching us about the mysteries of the kingdom. Look at verse 11. He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. This is why he's teaching in parables. Look at verse 10. Why do you speak in parables? Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Or if you look at verse 34, it says this, all these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Jesus is helping us to understand the secret plans of God, the things that God has been doing but hasn't told us about what was going to happen or how it was going to unfold. And that actually, you'll sometimes hear the phrase that we use up here, Matt used it this morning, eschatology. Eschatology is a big theological phrase, but it's actually helpful. And if you learn what it is, you can wow people at dinner parties and stuff probably. But anyway, eschatos is last or final. Eschatology is the study of final things. The problem with eschatology in the world today, and many of you who are, say, my age or older, many of you, 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 you heard eschatology and saw it taught in bizarre ways. It always referred to something in the far distant future or maybe in the near future, but we weren't sure. It had to do with 666, the Antichrist, whether Gorbachev was, was the Antichrist. Now Putin, I guess, is probably their man. And, uh, and, and, and the, the, the tribulation and, and, and all of that. It was all future. And that's a gross misunderstanding of eschatology because eschatology actually is the unfolding of God's plan for all of the ages. You could also describe it as God's purpose in the world, what God's about, what God's doing. And it's massive and it's glorious. And so I want to give you kind of a, I guess you would call it a crash course in understanding this structure of how to think, uh, understanding how the entire Bible is eschatological in that sense, how to understand to look at the Bible. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's opening up these mysteries. So let me give you something, and, and I actually have, believe it or not, let's see if it works. It's not working. I hit the wrong button. It's working. I, I have a PowerPoint, believe it or not. I don't do this ever, hardly, but I, I'm doing it now. So anyway, all of, the, all of the Bible, as God has revealed to all of human history, can be described in a very simple pattern. This age and then the age to come. This, and this is how Jesus taught. This age and the age to come. So for instance, we've actually already seen this. Look in Matthew chapter 12. In verse 32, Jesus said this. this is a passage we've already studied. Jesus said this. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. There is Jesus showing us the entire, the entire timeline of all of the world in, in, in its most basic form is this age and the age to come. Here's another verse that speaks of that. Jesus answered and said to them, the sons of this age, there we go, this age, marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age, so here we have this age and that age, and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now notice that, can I go backwards? Lee, can I go backwards? Okay. 
Uh, notice that the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Then notice that those of that age, they're like the resurrection from the dead. They neither marry nor are given in marriage. That age is qualitatively different than this age. The next verse shows you that. Nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So you have this age where people die, people marry, people die. That age where people never die and such. So that's, that's the general structure. But with the, and by the way, now I am going to really test the system. Here we go. Notice the line, okay, the line between this age and the age to come. That line represents the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It represents Jesus coming, Jesus judging, Jesus casting out the wicked, and Jesus establishing the new heavens and new earth. That's what that line is. Now, Jesus, though, with his first coming adds a nuance to it. Now, notice this here. With the second coming of Christ, well, this is what I just described. See how you have creation, and then you have that line on the, on the uh, left of that should be this age. This age ends with the second coming of Christ, and then the arrow is the, the, the wicked of this age, the tares that Chris talked about. They are judged. They are condemned. They're going to hell. The age to come then continues on with the new heavens and the new earth, okay? Now, that is a simple method. Now, here with this, what about the first coming of Christ? What did that do? Well, here's what happens with the first coming of Christ. Notice here, in this age, Christ comes the first time. With the first coming of Christ, especially with his, his incarnation and then his death, his resurrection, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, notice that the age to come has broken in to this age. The age to come has broken in to this age. And therefore, what you have, now let me see if I can get really bizarre here. What you have here is an overlapping of the ages during this age, an overlapping of the ages. One author called this the presence of the future. There's the future, and it breaks in now with the coming of Jesus. He inaugurates the kingdom of heaven. So at this point, then, you have two ages, two kingdoms that are at work at the same time in this era where we live in now. Now, that will all end when Jesus comes a second time. But when Jesus came the first time, he inaugurates the kingdom of God, and so now you have the overlapping of the two ages. Now, this is described in Scripture, so, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 6, where it says this, For it is impossible for those who are enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have, no, notice this, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. And so you notice that those who, uh, who have tasted of the powers of the age to come the age to come is already present in, in this world today. Now, there's two kingdoms then. There's two kingdoms that are at work right now. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. The kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil. Those two kingdoms are at work right now. And Jesus, therefore, is trying to explain by these parables in Matthew 13 the intricacies of what this will look like and what this will mean. Because the Jews in his day, they had no idea of this, this kingdom breaking in. They thought that it was just simple. 
We live now in this age. The Romans persecute us. We're under their occupation. The wicked Gentiles are in the world and us holy Jews are here. And then when Messiah comes, he's going to bring judgment. He's going to end all of this. The wicked, the Romans, the Gentiles will go to hell and we will have the kingdom and that's who we are. And that's what they thought. And Jesus now has to re-educate them and tell them the mysteries. No, no, no. God has another mystery that, that, that has been hidden from the foundation of the world. And that is the breaking in of the kingdom, the kingdom of God starting. And then, and, and so now he's trying to explain the tensions of these two ages. You're aware of these tensions in your own life. Personally, you are aware of these tensions. The tensions that, of this time that we live in where there's the overlapping of the ages. One of the tensions is this. I have been born again. You have been born again. You've been born again of the spirit. And yet I still have this old Adam body that was made of dust. And I will eventually, that's part of the complexity of it. Or think of it this way. I have been born again. I have the Holy Spirit living within me. But I also have remaining sin. And so that's from the old Adam age. And this is from the, the, the new. And so there's this battle. But again, but obviously there's also tensions in the world. You have the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, and you have the kingdom of man, the kingdom of darkness. And so what happens is, is these, these two kingdoms are in tension. And they have very different value systems and very different understandings. Dixie read 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul says that to the Jews and to the Greeks and to the wise of this world, the gospel is utter foolishness. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God into salvation. So one kingdom looks at the gospel, looks at the cross, and looks at the dying Savior and says, this is absolutely bunk. This is foolishness. This has nothing to do with me. And people from the kingdom of light say, this is the power of God into salvation. This is the most amazing thing that could be said. What crazy people we are this morning. We came here and we sat and we stood and we sang the praises of God and the praises of God who would send his son and the praises of God whose son would die for us. And the world thinks that's absolutely utter foolishness. One kingdom thinks that's foolishness. Other kingdom delights in it. And so there's these two kingdoms and they are in tension with one another. Now, it's not a battle of equals, dear friends. Now, right now, it seems like the kingdom of the world is winning kind of persecuting Christians around the world and things like that. But Daniel... God reveals in Daniel, uh-uh, that ain't the final story. And so in Daniel 2.44, it says this. And in the days, Dixie read this. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. This was the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the inaugurating of the kingdom, which shall never be destroyed. See, all the kingdoms of the world are going to be destroyed. The United States of America will be destroyed one day. Russia, China, they'll all be dust one day. But not the kingdom of God. The kingdom and that kingdom shall not be left to other people. Nobody's going to defeat it. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Remember when Gabriel came to Mary and said, you're going to have a baby. He's going to be great. He's going to be king, and he's going to rule forever and ever and ever. Jesus came to establish and begin and start a kingdom. Now, during the overlapping of these ages, this is what Jesus is teaching. During the overlapping of these two kingdoms, until Jesus comes again and inaugurates his, and consummates his kingdom, during this overlapping, the, the age of the kingdom, the word of God is going to go out. And this is the parable of the seed and the sowers. And some will accept, and some will not, and some will have initial joy, and they will be strangled out by the world. And Jesus says, that's the dynamic. See, for the Jewish people, there was no sowing of seeds. We're Jewish. Messiah comes, we got the kingdom, it's over. Jesus said, no, 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 the word's going to be sowed out. 
And then Jesus said in the overlapping of the ages, there's going to be wheat and tares. This is what Chris preached on last week. There's going to be wheat and tares growing together. And we're going to wait until the very end. And then what's going to happen at the end? Well, look at the passage that Chris preached on. And look at how Jesus describes it. Verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares, bind them in bundles and to burn them. That's the, the error that I had of this age going down. But to gather the wheat into my barn. And so Jesus tells this parable that the wheat and the tares, the two kingdoms are going to be vying for each other and going to be with each other together, the wheat and the tares, until that final day when the tares will be eliminated and the kingdom will be, will be his. And so, and so we're supposed to live in the world that is hostile, but we're not supposed to be of the world. We're supposed to separate from this world in one sense, but not be separatistic. And that's where Jesus is going to go now. He's going to give us two more parables, really short ones, really simple ones, but very profound. Look at verse 31. Another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Kids, Jesus is talking about a very little seed right now, very teeny little seed. It's a mustard seed, and it's a very small seed. Jesus is not making some exclusive scientific botany description that it's the smallest of all seeds. He's just making a point. He said, this is a teeny little seed. And it's one of the smallest seeds that we actually sow, Jesus says, in our garden. And in this context, it's the herb garden context. You put that little seed in the ground, and the mustard tree, in, especially in their climate, the mustard seed would grow up to 8, sometimes 12 feet, and birds could, in fact, put and make nests in it. Mrs. Jossen here, kids, she likes a flower that's called a cosmos. And she loves cosmos, and she always asks me, because I'm the resident flower seed planter, apparently, uh, she, 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 she has people to do it, so she doesn't need to do it. So she says, hey, would you, are, did you plant cosmos? Did you plant cosmos? And when I plant cosmos, I have to be very careful where I put the cosmos, because it's a small little seed, and I put it in the ground. But cosmos grow really high, and they're beautiful flowers, but they're high. You can't put them in front of any of the lower flowers and everything like that. And that's what Jesus is referring to. The kingdom of God is like this mustard seed. Very little little seed you put it in the ground and then you cover it up and then it grows it grows it grows now kids what what is what does that teach us about the kingdom of God this little seed well Jesus is saying well first of all it has very humble small beginnings secondly its growth is quick it goes shoots up it grows way way bigger than you would even imagine and it can be a harbor, a place of, of, of harbor and rest for things. That's, that's what he's getting at. We'll, we'll open that up, but let's look at the next one. Look at verse 33. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leavened. Now, leaven is like a yeast. Back then, they would use what we call today sourdough. Uh, we have commercial yeast that we use. But either way, uh, you're putting yeast inside bread. And so when you make bread, now this is quite a large amount of flour, by the way. 
Uh, it's three measures of flour, and that's a Greek sata, and a Greek sata was about a peck and a fourth of flour, one. And so this is, this is a large amount of flour, and yet it's not too large. It's not astronomically large because when Abraham and Sarah had three visitors come to their house, Abraham said, make, this, take, make three measures of flour and make some bread. But this is a lot of flour. It's a lot of bread. And so you put a little bit of yeast into all this dough, and what happens? Well, kids, I make bread. And when I make bread, and I make sourdough bread, so it's more like these biblical people do. And I, I, I actually mix it all up at night and put it in my refrigerator. I go to bed. I go to sleep. And I wake up the next morning. It's always like Christmas for bread baker. I wake up the next morning, and it's all raised up. And I pull it out, and I get ready to make it into loaves. It's all raised up. And again, notice here, things start off simple. They're quiet. They're imperceptible. They're, they're going on inside there. You don't even see it. You don't even know. And yet, this yeast is transforming the entire lump, the entire low. It's having a transformative effect on it. And it changes it, and it grows. And these are the two parables. Now, Jesus' followers did not anticipate the kingdom would be like a mustard seed or leaven. Again, go back into their mind. What are they thinking? They're thinking something very different. They think that when the Messiah comes, he's coming with a horse and he's coming with an army and he's coming to defeat and he's coming to set up Jerusalem as the center of the world and the kingdom. And that's what's going to happen. It's going to happen quick. It's going to happen sudden. And he, they think of it kind of like we think of the second coming. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, again, after all of Jesus' teaching, the disciples asked this question. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, this is after Jesus has actually risen from the dead and is, and, and is about to ascend. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says to them, he, I'm sure he was frustrated at this point. He said, guys, you just don't get this, do you? No, in fact, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you're going to go out into Jerusalem, Judea, and all the uh, world, and you're going to sow the seeds of the kingdom, and it's going to, summer's going to fall on good, and all of a sudden the whole thing's going to start making sense to them. But at this point, they're like, when are you going to come? See, they think the kingdom's going to come loud and cataclysmic, and the whole world's going to be called to attention. No sowing seeds and some falling out, so there's not going to be any of that. And that's how we see the second coming. When the second coming of Christ comes and the sky rolls away and there he comes with his angels and he brings the souls of all of the saints and he comes to judge and he comes in glory and we stand before him in that day. There's no sowing of seeds at that point. There's no wheat and tares. Oh, there's wheat and tares, but that's the time when the wheat and tares are going to be separated and separated for eternity. There's no mixed crowd. There's no little mustard seed quietly growing. There's no little leaven quietly leavening. No, it's dramatic. It's loud. It's cataclysmic. And Jesus says, that's not what's going to happen first. I'm going to inaugurate a quiet, little, unassuming kingdom. And it's going to be a mystery. And so let me explain that mystery. And that's what's going on. He's explaining the mysteries of the kingdom. So let's go back to these, these things. What is he teaching with this mustard seed and this leaven? Number one, that the kingdom of God in its beginning forms is going to start with an inconsequential small beginning, a little mustard seed, a little mustard seed put in the ground, and there it's going to be, it's going to be patted in, a little mustard seed, a little leaven just put in. You've got this big amount of flour, and you've got some water in there, and you've got this dough, and you're, would somebody please hang up that phone? Is that the phone? Oh, it's a cell phone. Oh, well, at least it's somebody I love. Uh, I love everybody here, but... 
I thought that was a church phone. I'm like, what the heck? Okay, so a little bit of mustard seed put in, put in the ground. Quiet, imperceptible. You put, you put the dirt on it, you, walk, you put some water and you walk away. Quiet, little, inconsequential thing. A big bunch of, almost a bushel of flour. Water in there. You're up to your elbows in, in kneading bread. And then you put a little bit of starter in there. You put a little bit of yeast in there. And it's so inconsequential. It seems like it's not going to do anything. This whole thing starts off with one Galilean carpenter. And 11, because one of them is a jerk, 11 disciples. And they're peasants. And they're laborers. And none of them are actually in intellectuals at all. Matthew may be a mathematician of some sort. He had some kind of power. But the rest of them were peasants and laborers. It was going to start off inconsequential, Jesus said. Jesus said, you see me and this motley crew of guys I call my disciples? This is it. The kingdom has arrived. It's here. And that's what he was trying to do by showing with these two parables. Secondly, its growth will be astronomical. The little mustard seed is going to grow into a whole tree. The little bit of leaven, the little bit of starter that you put in all of that dough and you knead in is going to leaven that entire dough until that thing begins to expand and to grow. The growth is going to be astronomical. Daniel sees the exact same vision. He sees a little rock that comes out of the ground, not chiseled by human hands. This is not a human endeavor. This is a God endeavor. This little rock comes out and it smashes all of the kingdoms of the world. The gold and the silver and the bronze and the clay and iron. All of them crush to the ground and become dust because of this little rock. And this little rock grows and 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 becomes a mountain that covers the entire earth. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is going to grow astronomically. It's going to spread. Jesus is saying this. My kingdom, starting off this motley crew of these guys over here and me, my, this, this kingdom is going to spread and spread and spread and spread and spread astronomically until it covers the entire world. And guess what, dear friends? That's exactly what happened and is happening. That's exactly what happened and is happening. Let me, let me give you an example of it happened it happened in the Roman world. Daniel's prophesying it. Daniel's prophesying. He's saying, at the time of this iron and, and ceramic clay kingdom, which is the Roman kingdom, at the time of that kingdom, this new kingdom is going to come that will never fail. And it was during the Roman kingdom. And do you know what the Romans thought about Christians? Number one, they had no idea they even existed. We have letters from Roman leaders to Roman other leaders saying, who are these people Christians? Who are these Christ followers? What are they all about? I'm hearing about them. They have no idea they exist. If you would have read the Roman newspapers, if you would have gone to the Roman universities, if you would have watched the Roman podcasts, if you would have done all that back in the first century, then what would you have seen? Anything about Christians? No. They'd be talking about the Republic. They'd be talking about the Senate. They'd be talking about the emperors. They'd be talking about the army. They'd be talking about the newest fashions. They'd be talking about the newest uh, sculptures. They'd be talking about this amazing Colosseum. They'd be talking about the gladiators in there. They'd be talking about all this going on. And in the meantime, quietly, imperceptibly, especially amongst the poor and the peasants and the slaves, the kingdom of God began to grow and began to grow and began to grow. And in a 300-year period of time, you start looking at Roman history, and all of a sudden, the Christians burst forth. They're being persecuted is what happens. 
These Christian people, they begin to persecute them. They begin to take their Bibles. They begin to burn them. And they begin to kill them and kill them and kill them. And they begin to superstitiously blame them for everything. These Christians caused the fire of Rome, Nero said. These Christians caused it. These Christians are bad. These Christians are wicked. Even And everybody turned on him. The, the Jews turned on him. And the Romans turned on him. Everybody turned on him. And they persecuted him. And the thing went underground. But it kept growing. It kept growing. It kept growing. It kept growing. Until 300 years later, Constant, uh, Constantine, the emperor, becomes a Christian. And the entire Roman culture becomes Christianized. It was a little mustard seed. And it grew and grew and grew. Think of the world today. Think of the world today. Let's take the major religions of the world today. Islam is the second biggest religion of the world today to Christianity. Now, Islam, though is a very culture-bound religion. It primarily is amongst Arab people. There's some input in Northern Africa amongst the Arab peoples of Northern Africa. There is some impact that is had upon Asia. There is some impact that is had upon Asia. Uh, Indonesia and others have large Muslim. There, there, there's some African, some, but it's mostly culture-bound to Arabs. Islam has almost untouched the West. Very few Western people who are Islamic. It's untouched Europe. It's untouched Russia. It's untouched Scandinavia. The South American Hispanic culture knows very little of Islam. Huge swaths of sub-Sahara uh, Africa is not Islamic, although it's trying to push down through. Islam is a very culture-bound religion. Hinduism, Buddhism. They're historically Asian, historically India, and that's pretty much, they haven't gone before. A couple cool hip, uh, uh, hipsters like to dabble in Buddhism uh, in Western culture, but that's about it. It's had very, very little impact. Secularism, I consider secularism a religion. In fact, I think it's the most deadly uh, religion out there today. Uh, not Islam, secularism. Uh, and we know that because it's killed more people than any other religion. Where is secularism as a religion? Well, it's primarily Western. Europe, America, uh, Western countries. Now, it is making inroads worldwide. Secularism is making inroads worldwide. And there's two reasons for that, primarily. Number one, Western media. Western movies, Western music is, is, is sending uh, secularism around. That's why when people say uh, America is the great Satan, uh, they're, they're referring to the fact that it's, it's the impact of our secularism. that is. The second thing is, and this is why secularism is such a powerful and wicked religion, is that secularism appeals directly to the flesh. Hey, man, I want to have sex with whoever I want to have sex with. Secularism lets you. Hey, I want money. I want to be secularism materialistic. Hey, I don't want any accountability. I don't want any God telling me what to do. Secularism will do that. Secularism appeals to the flesh. Nevertheless, secularism is having a very limited impact outside of the Western culture, and we need to realize that. Americans, do you know that we're only 6% of the world population? I know we think we're the whole world population. We're not. We're a small little minority. But now let's turn to Christianity. Let's turn to Christianity. Starts off with Jesus, a Galilean peasant carpenter, and 11 uh, true disciples. And it has blown up into a worldwide movement. People who study this and analyze this estimate that 174,000 people become Christians every day. 
that there are 3,500 new churches started every day around the world. Christianity has had an impact in every single continent. Christianity spreads the whole world. Christianity is seen in Asian countries and in African countries and in European countries and in Russia and in, and in, and in uh, all, all through Europe. Christianity has spread in everyone. In fact, there's not a country that doesn't have Christians in it. Now, there are unreached people groups within countries that need the gospel still. But in terms of it, it is worldwide. Unlike Islam, unlike Buddhism, unlike secularism, Christianity transcends. There's Christians of every race, Christians of every ethnicity, Christians all around the world, rich Christians and poor Christians, Christians in communist lands, Christians in, in capitalist lands. Christianity transcends culture and race and ethnicity. It, 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 it transcends nationality. It transcends any gender. It transcends age. Christianity is everywhere. And I want to give you some examples of the power, the astronomical growth of Christianity. I want to give you two examples. Both of them have to do with black folks, African and American blacks. Africa. The big secular myth that it was, Stevie had to read this book called The Poisonous Bible uh, for English class. And I'm like, oh, go, here we go, oh, please. And so I said, Steve, what's it about? And he said, oh, this author's writing about how uh, Christianity, they imposed it upon Africa. Africa, uh, it, was, it, was, it was imposed upon the people. People didn't want it. I said, Steve, that is absolutely historically bunk. I said, the most Christianized nation, a, a, a country today right now is Africa. There are more Christians in Africa than there are in any, any other country in the world. And I've seen this with my own eyes and it's absolutely beautiful. I was in Zambia. And when I was in Zambia, Sunday morning came. And I was being driven to the church that I was going to preach at. And I looked and I couldn't believe what I saw. Pouring out of houses, walking down. I thought it was a parade. I thought it was a national holiday walking down the street of these absolutely beautiful black men and women with their, with their dressed with bright colors, all with Bibles under their hands. And I said to my host, what is going on here? And he said, what are you talking about? I said, is this a national? I said, Todd, it's Sunday in Zambia. We're going to church. I said, your whole nation is going to church. He said, pretty much, pretty much. It was beautiful, dear friends. It was beautiful. Christianity isn't a white man's religion. Christianity it started, it's a Jewish religion, if anything. It started from this small little ethnic group that is still a very small little ethnic group called Jews in the Middle East, a white man's religion. And yet in Africa, Christianity is taking over sub-Sahara below the, the Islam countries, and it's absolutely beautiful. But let's think more about the astronomical power of the gospel. Who would be the last people in the United States of America that you would think would become Christians? And my answer to that would be Africans who were captured by fellow Africans. By the way, whites weren't running through Africa capturing slaves. Blacks were capturing slaves, sold them to white people on the coast. And then these white people tortured, persecuted, Many of them died and then enslaved them and treated them like chattel and like animals. And many of these white people that did this in America professed to be Christians. Professed to be Christians. Wouldn't you think that the last people in the world who would become Christian would be the African slave? And yet, 
And yet, listen to this. I'm reading a book now, one of my heroes, Booker T. Washington is one of my heroes. Booker T. Washington, his first book was entitled Up From Slavery. He was a slave, he was a Christian. And uh, then he started a, a college, it's still there today, Tuskegee Institute. And Booker T. then becomes free and he starts this college. So he is now reaching out to sl former slaves who have just been freed. He's reaching out to them to start this college and things like this. And listen to what Booker T. wrote. This is his second book called My Larger Education. And I haven't read the whole thing, but I can tell you the first chapter was just breathtaking. I loved it. But listen to what Booker T. wrote right after slavery. The average man outside the black race is likely to assume that the tens of millions of colored people, and that's his words, in this country are a mere disorganized and heterogeneous collection of individuals herded together under one statistical label, without head or tail, and with no conscious common purpose. This is far from true. There are certain common interests uh, that are peculiar to all blacks, certain channels through which it is, it is possible to touch and influence the whole people. In my study of the race in, in what I may call its organized capacity, listen to this, I soon learned that the most influential organization amongst blacks is the black church. The kingdom of God in the midst of all of that oppression, in the midst of all of that suffering, in the midst of all of that hypocrisy from white uh, slave owners, the kingdom of God grew and grew and grew imperceptibly under the surface until slavery ends and the most organized thing in the entire black community is the church. He goes on to say this, I question whether or not there is a group of 10 millions of people anywhere, not accepting the Catholics even, that have so readily reached and influenced through their church organizations as the 10 millions of blacks in the United States. Of these millions of black people, there is only a very small percentage that does not have formal or informal connection with some church. The majority of people came out of slavery, Booker T says, are connected to Christian churches. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of the kingdom of God. And it's powerful, it transcends race, it transcends all things. But then notice here, finally, it's imperceptible. You don't know what's coming. You see, what, that's what I'm saying. The most exciting thing that's happening in the world today is 174,000 people are becoming Christians every day. 3,500 churches are getting started every day. The kingdom of God is growing. The kingdom of God is growing in every single continent, every, amongst every single people group. Christ is being loved. Christ is being preached. Christ is being accepted. The church is growing. The church is moving. And it's all imperceptible. You don't know what's going on. The two, two of the greatest historic uh, expanses of the church was in the Roman culture that I've already described. The second one is happening in our day. It's in, happening in China. And it's all imperceptible. It's illegal to be a Christian. It's illegal to have churches except for the Chinese stamped, rubber stamped church, which is compromised. It's illegal. And yet massive, millions and millions and millions of people are becoming Christians and they've become Christians in China, even though it's illegal. Why? Small little house churches. Quietly, the leaven is moving. Quietly, the mustard seed is growing. More and more, it is moving and growing. They're coming to Christ, and they're coming to Christ. And, 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 and even the communist government doesn't know what's going on completely. They're trying to crack down, and they don't know what's going on. Dear friends, this is the mastery and the glory of what Jesus has started. He started this kingdom. 
and how, how wonderful it is and how quietly people come to Christ. Didn't you come to Christ in a quiet way? Didn't you, for the most part, as you were thinking and considering this and, and think? Now, some of you became Christians even before you were even very conscious. You, you had the blessing of being brought up in Christian homes. But others of us became Christians. We thought about it. We had to wrestle with it. We weighed the costs. The Holy Spirit was at work. And at some point, we, we gave ourselves over to Christ. It's a quiet, imperceptible thing. Dear friends, it's still going on today. That's why I believe that the most powerful, the most important organization in the world is the local church. The local church. I'll even make a distinction here. The local church as opposed to even Christian colleges, Christian seminaries, Christian mission organizations, Christian outreaches and things like that that have buildings and staff and things like that. Bless them all. Bless them all. May God use them. May they work. But I'll give you an example. The Equality Act. Many of them are very, very scared of this Equality Act. These parachurch organizations, Christian colleges, Christian uh, mission organizations, Christian schools, Christian hospitals, Christian adoption agencies. Some of them are very, very scared about this Equality Act because they're going to have to hire this and they're going to have to do this and they're going to have to do that and they're going to have to compromise their vision and things like that and it's going to all be fought in the court and they're all worried about this. But the local church doesn't need to be worried about this for two reasons. Number one, right now the local church has been exempt. The local church is exempt from this. That's going to be fine. We won't have to, to, to follow along some of the things that they would want us to do. But what if that changes? What if they do? Well, it's easy. We sell the building. We go underground. But we continue to be the church. We continue to make disciples. We continue to love one another. We continue to use our gifts. That's because Jesus has launched the most low-key, under-the-radar, grassroots, powerful movement that could possibly be. It's called the local church. And you're in it. Local church doesn't need money. People say, what's going to happen if our fundraising if the taxes? I said, the church doesn't need money. Ten households that tithe can support a pastor full-time. Ten households that tithe can support a pastor full-time. Church doesn't need money. People always say, what can we do? Can we give you money? I said, no, please keep your money. We don't need your money. We need disciples. We need a Bible taught. We need to love one another. We need to be the people of God. But we don't need your money. No, no, dear friends. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So what should you and I do? I hope you're excited. The kingdom's growing. Nothing can stop it. The little rock is growing into a mountain. The people got, the, the mustard seed is going, the leaven's going all around the world. We have black and Asian and Hispanic and, and, and white, all of us coming together to love Christ and to know him. What can you do to make that happen? Oh, give money? No, forget your money. Keep your money. Here's what you can do. Jesus already gave it to us. Matthew 5. Jesus, by the way, had no money. When they asked him, do you pay taxes? He says, oh, anybody, anybody got a coin? We're so tied up in money and fundraising these days. It's crazy. That's why you don't hear about it here. We don't need money. Here's what we need. Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. Remember what Jesus said? Verse 11. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing. Be thrown out and trampled by men. You're the salt of the earth. You're the preservative. You're the light of the world. Verse 14. A city set on a sail can't be hidden. Don't light a lamp and put it under a bushel, he says. Look at verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Who are these people? 
Who are these people? Well, he's described them. Look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn. The meek, they're going to inherit the earth. Those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who are merciful. Those who are pure in heart, they're going to see God. The peacemakers, even those who are persecuted for Jesus' name's sake, theirs is the kingdom of God. What is Jesus' great strategy to save the world? Save you, make you a kingdom member, make you light, make you a child of God, and unleash you on the world. Go be you. Go be you. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbors yourself. Love Jesus Christ. Be thankful for what he's done. And tell other people what he's done. Love people. Be kind. Be just. Be faithful to them. Help the poor. Help the needy. Help the downtrodden. Help the sick. Help the orphan. Help the widow. Help the guy in your workplace. Who's hurting? Come alongside him. Throw an arm around him or her. Pray for them. Reach out to people. Love people. Be a light. Be a shine. Be salt. Be you. Be who you are. And if you get an opportunity, tell them about Jesus and your hope and the joy that is within you. Be joyful. Be happy. Be excited about the world. Be a kingdom member. See the kingdom. I am so sick of politics. I am so sick of politics. People start talking. People want to talk to me about politics. I don't care if they're Republican. I don't care if they're Democrat. I don't want to hear it. You know why? If somebody, I was telling Jan to say, somebody came up to me and started telling me the politics of just pick a country, Czechoslovakia. I'd be like, Ugh. I don't live in Czechoslovakia. I don't really care about Czechoslovakia. You know what? You know what? When people talk to me about American politics, you know what I do? You know why? This ain't my kingdom. And guess what? Jesus is king of my kingdom. And my kingdom is glorious and it's beautiful. Oh, America's got problems, yeah, but it's not my kingdom. Oh, I love America. I want to be saved. I pray for America. I, I, I get all that. But that's not my kingdom. My kingdom is Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. And my job is not to see America change. I would love to see America change, but that's not my, my job is to see the kingdom of God come. And God hasn't put me in Washington either. I want to see the kingdom grow in West Salem Township. I want to see the kingdom grow in Jamestown. I want to see the kingdom grow in Trumbull County. I want to see the kingdom grow here where God has planted me. And you know what? I want to be a shining light of the kingdom on Hickory Road where I live. That's Jesus' master plan. Oh, dear ones, leave here and go spread the light. Be kingdom members. Love God and love your neighbor and spread the good news of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that all is not lost in the world today. That although the politicians are foolish for the most part, academics have shown that they're foolish and even wicked. Although babies are being aborted, people are being surgically deformed by their sex, old people are being killed, although we're talking about just throwing money around to solve problems, although all of these failed, failed things are happening, it's discouraging, it's distressing, although people hate one another now, are lining up by race and lining up by, by agendas. Father, in the midst of all of this, thank you that we can sit calmly and rejoice in one sense, not because of the suffering of our neighbors, we, we weep for them, but because a kingdom is being built quietly, around the world, here, 
People are being baptized. People are getting saved. The kingdom is going forth, and nothing will stop it. You are God. You have launched your kingdom. Oh, we pray, send forth your gospel, and help us, we pray. Help us to do our part. Am I shining my light? Am I loving others? Am I showing a different way? Help us, we pray. Spread your kingdom. May your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.